So um, we are finishing our semester in Romans by, we've only made it really halfway through. Uh, And this is our third week, and we're finishing third week in Romans 8, and we're going to round out our study by looking at the end of Romans 8. Some of the most glorious things in all of Scripture is what Paul packs in to these verses here in Romans 8. I wanted to read you all something. I knew that there had been an article about this, but I did not know how the article started. I'm not going to tell you what the article is about yet, but I just want to read you. This is the first sentence of the article. It was in the Washington Post a couple of years ago. No introduction, no anything. This is all it says. Democrats are nearly twice as likely than Republicans to have a fear of clowns. So carry that with you to the ballot box um, in November. Anyway, no, that's not why I brought that up. I just thought it was interesting that that's how the article started. Most of you probably know this. What is the number one phobia in America? I heard it. Public speaking, right? Seems like everybody, um, it seems like everybody has it. When it comes time, like, hey, somebody needs to stand up and say this, whatever it is, class or whatever, like, nobody volunteers for that. Nobody wants to do that. And it makes sense that public speaking is the number one phobia in America. Because if you think about it, the thing about public speaking is when you stand up, and as I am well aware, uh, awkwardly a lot, when you stand up in front of people, you are fully exposed. Fully exposed, right? If you say something wrong, everyone hears it. If your fly is down, if there's something in your nose, if there's anything, right? There's a fl- when you stand up in front of people, it doesn't matter how many times you've done it, there's a flood of what ifs, right? What could go wrong in this moment? Um, and I could list quite a few just in three years of being at Mercer, but I'm not going there. Um, but I think the, what the fear of public speaking, I think what it actually points us to is something that's very common, if not completely common to all of us, is that in our heart of hearts, we are all very insecure people. And there's nothing quite like standing up in front of a crowd that just makes that so tangible, right? All those floods of what ifs is all the insecurity that we carry around in ourselves daily, right? Just hoping nobody sees us. Or if we're one of those people that craves attention, we're actually using things that we want people to see to crave that attention to hide the things that we don't want them to look at, right? Works both ways, the quiet and the loud alike. As Paul kind of rounds out Romans 8 here, and he's really rounding out a section of Romans 5 through Romans 8. Uh, He begins Romans 5 with the assurance of hope that the gospel gives. He ends Romans 8 with the assurance of hope that the gospel gives. There's something in the gospel, there's something that the gospel tells us that is true about God and about us. That will completely, if we let it, if we actually let it have its way with us, will completely tear down the walls and towers and fortresses of insecurity that we've built up in our hearts. Be it about ourselves, be it about the world around us, be it about spiritual things like our relationship with God. The gospel will completely obliterate it. So what does Paul say? Let's look at this together. Let's read together. Romans 8, 28. Through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father... These words, these verses, as you spoke through your servant Paul, by your Holy Spirit, they're enough. We could read them 15 more times, and that just be it for the night. Father, do you even begin to scratch the surface of our hearts to let these truths, as bold and as breathtaking as they are, Would even just an ounce of it sink in tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, I think I've said this before. The more I have tried to take a hop, skip, and a jump through Romans with y'all this semester, the more I fully understand now why so many preachers preach this book like three or four verses at a time. Uh, Because we're, I mean, we're only looking at like 11, 12 verses tonight, and there is so much here. Uh, and we're going to try our best just to round out our series by, by contemplating them as best we can tonight. So I, I broke it down in three parts for you there. And the first thing is this. What do we know? Paul says that there's something from the outset. There is something that we know. And you remember uh, back in uh, verse 26 of Romans 8, he actually said there's something we don't know. We don't even know what to pray for like we're supposed to. When he was talking about how the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. But now he takes a turn and he says, but we do know this. What? What do we know? Well, for all its overuse, and perhaps it's become cliche to you, I don't know. Romans 8.28, it's stated pretty simply. For those people who love God and who are called by God, everything in your life, even the bad, in the end, will prove itself to have been for your good. That's what he says. He lays it out boldly, simply, with no qualification, right? Uh, Well, actually, there's qualifier within it. But 
And that's the first thing I wanted. I said no qualification. The first word that I have in my next sentence is a qualifier. Good job. Um, public speaking, phobia. There you go. Um, laugh. Laugh. There you go. All right, good. Um, I need a cue card. Whoever wants to hold a cue card, laugh sign next semester, talk to me. Anyway. First, let's just break down the statement as straightforward as it is there, Romans 8, 28. Let's break it down. First, the qualifier is for those that love God, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Okay. So just at the outset, it's worth saying that this is not some general optimism like, hey, everything's going to be okay. It's not a general optimism. It is specifically about God's people, those who love him. And we know that those who love him are those who, whom he first loved, right? Those whom he has set his love upon. Nor is it some kind of like Peter Pan transformational happy thought, right? Um, if we just get this, like, hey, if you love God, everything gets good. Um, welcome to the party. Um, no, they are those who are called, those whom God has brought into relationship with himself. Okay? More on that later. Second thing, I think we got to be careful with what Paul is not saying. And maybe a way that sometimes we flippantly throw this verse out. You know, sometimes in the midst of grief, we're just, we're stabbing for something. This is a great verse to go to, but sometimes we don't actually think through when the right time to say it is. But for one thing, he says, for the good, that doesn't mean that just like, hey, everything's going to work out. As far as circumstances, right? Hey, everything's, everything will end up good. Your circumstances might be bad now, but hey, they're going to get better. There is never any promise in this life that your circumstances will get better. If anything, the probability that Jesus gives us is that we can know it will probably get worse. The Bible is very honest about that, right? This is not the Bible's version of, hey, there's always sunshine on the other side of the clouds. Okay, it's not, it's not a, hey, God takes lemons and makes lemonade. It is not that kind of spiritual remedy. No, it's, um, yeah, it's not as if better circumstances are inevitably ahead. So don't worry about the ones right now. No, what, the key is, what is our good? He said, all things work together for good. Well, what is the good? It's our good. That's why the qualifier is there. For those that love God and are called by him. It is our good. Okay, verse 29 He says it explicitly. It's the reason that we were foreknown and predestined. Why? To be conformed to the image of his son. Now we could spend weeks just on that. It means that everything in my life that happens is happening for the reason that I can be changed. God allows and ordains every single thing that has happened in my life. Even the bad things that I have done. And he uses them to change me. He's not just changing me, but he's changing me into the image of his son. The good Paul is talking about is our holiness. This eternal state that we will one day have in his presence fully. Okay, It's what he's actively doing in your life right now. It's why he sent Jesus. It's why Jesus died. It's why Jesus was raised. It's why his spirit is within you. It's your salvation from beginning to end. That is your good. Your good is not that you get the job you were hoping for when you got out of college. Your good is not necessarily that you find a spouse. Your good is not necessarily that you get out of debt. Fill in the blank with whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a good that is so much heavier than that because it's eternal. Your eternal good. 
So take this just to the third thing. The third thing I want to think about this verse is this. What Paul really is saying, and we cannot take it lightly, and I do not mean to take it lightly at all, but let's just say it. What he really is saying is that it is God's purpose and practice to take all things, no qualification, all things, even your pain, your heartache, your loneliness, your confusion, your depression, your regrets, all of it. He's not going to erase them. He's not going to give you some amnesia so you can forget about it. He's not going to deny them. He's not just going to pretend that they never happened. And he's not going to make you pay for it as if your problems or struggles are your comeuppance for not measuring up. No, he really, really will work all of it according to his purpose and our good. And what this is also telling us is that his purpose and our good are the same thing. And it's one purpose. And he will work it. And there is not one thing that will throw it off course. There's no plan B. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. If college was ever a time to hear that, I don't know what it is. There's no plan B. God has a purpose. He knows what it is. And it's your good. And he will move heaven and earth to make sure it happens. Job, if you're familiar with the story of Job, Job's story is one of suffering. And the meat of the book is him with his three friends trying to figure out, as his three friends are trying to offer advice of why is all this bad stuff happening to you? Um, And hint, their answers are terrible. Uh, But halfway through the book, Job says something interesting as he's trying to process out loud with his friends. He says this about God. On the one hand, he says, I look to my left and he is not there. I look to my right and I cannot see him. Then he says this, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I will come out as pure gold. Job got something he didn't get while he was suffering. He didn't get why it was so dark, but he knew at least it was for his good. And that his good would be accomplished, that God would accomplish his good. Look, this does not minimalize or trivialize suffering. It actually does quite the opposite. It does not stamp, it's not telling us stamp a happy face on anything that happens in your life uh, as if that will magically make it better. No, this is actually what it is. God does with, in, and through your suffering the exact same thing he did with Jesus's. Think about this. Not original to me, but I think it is a brilliant question. Is the cross of Jesus Christ, if we are assenting to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was crucified 2,000 years ago. It's a historical event. Is the cross of Jesus Christ the best or the worst thing that has ever happened in history? Think about it. Is the cross of Jesus Christ the best Or the worst thing that has ever happened in human history? Let me answer it for you. It was, without a doubt, the most evil thing that any man or men has ever done. They crucified the completely innocent, 
perfectly holy, righteous maker of heaven and earth on trumped up charges. Yet, it was, without a doubt, the greatest act of love that has ever been accomplished in history at the same time. Were the men who crucified Jesus guilty? Yes. Did God ordain its happening? Yes. Peter, how do you think Peter felt about the crucifixion? Let's say even before Jesus is even on the cross, how did Peter feel? Peter felt like his world was over. If you remember the story. Denied his best friend, the one who he said, I will die for you, Jesus. And then a little girl asked him if he's with Jesus and he swears at her. How do you think, how do you think Peter felt? Yet, Peter in Acts 2, in the first Holy Spirit inspired sermon at Pentecost, this is what he says. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified by the hands of lawless men. In the same breath, he says both of it. Living, there's tons of living, breathing examples of this, but one that I've, I've, I love the story of was a man named Joseph Sohn. I think he's still alive. He was a, he's Romanian. He's a pastor in 70s, 80s Romania. Romania is uh, Eastern Europe, so it was the Cold War uh, bloc, the European bloc, still under communism in the 70s and 80s, not kind to Christianity at all. Uh, and so he found himself uh, at many times under the scrutiny of the secret police. Uh, and many times secretly imprisoned and beaten, uh, threatened with death. And so one time he finally looked at his tormentors and he said this. What is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will do to me only what God wants you to do. And you will not go one inch further. Because you are only an instrument of my God. And he says, every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. Did Joseph Sohn believe what those men were doing was wrong? Yes. Did Joseph Sohn believe that God was in control of it? Yes. His purpose, our good, synonymous in all things. Paul does not say that we always understand, but he does say that there's something that we know, that there's nothing that happens or comes that does not come from his hand. And every single ounce of it is according to his purpose for our good. Romans 8, 28. I wish we had years. We do have years until Jesus comes again. So we can talk about it tomorrow in the next day and the next day. But let's move on. That's what we know, okay? But how do we know this, okay? How do we know this? And this is it. You cannot understand Romans 8.28. I know it's a, it's a verse that we remember and it's comforting because it's true. 
But you cannot understand Romans 8.28 apart from verses 29 and 30. Uh, it's one of the first, as far as chronological, well, yeah, as you read through the New Testament book by book, it's the first uh, orders of salvation that you find in the New Testament. There's a few of them uh, in there. And it's not exhaustive, but it, it has a few because Paul's making a point that we'll get to in a minute. It's this one specifically in Romans 8, 29 and 30 is what uh, theologians for centuries have returned to, referred, returned to, let's see, public speaking, there it goes, um, referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Paul is saying that we can know God's good purpose by looking at how he actively works in those whom he loves from beginning to end. How do we know? Because we can look at how he actively works in those he loves from beginning to end. What's the first thing Paul says? Verse 29. The first thing Paul says, just to sum it up, is that God's purpose, our salvation, was thought about before we ever thought about thinking about it. How do you like that? Our salvation was thought about before we ever thought about thinking about it. That's what Paul says. He uses this word, first one he says, uh, he uses the word, this word for new, right? Definitely a buzzword. Um, so here's the question. What did he foreknow? What did he foreknow? Read it. Those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. It's not what did he foreknow. It's Whom did he foreknow? That's the key to the whole thing. Who is he talking about? Those whom he loves. We get this. Look, for for any discussion, thoughts you've ever had on this word, we get how this word's used, even though it's heavier in Hebrew and Greek. But look, we get this. If I asked you, hey, do you know so-and-so? You could very well say this to me. I know who he is, but I don't know him. Right? And everybody would know what you mean. Am I right? I don't know. I I know who he is, but I don't know him. What does that mean? It means I don't have a relationship with that person. There's no mutual knowing going on. Uh, Spanish, um, which I know like two words. Um, And these two, they have Spanish draws us out. There's two words for knowing in Spanish. I don't know why I said that. You don't care. Anyway, English just loses it, but we get the sentiment here. The Bible distinguishes this kind of knowing throughout its pages. In Genesis, we read that Adam knew his wife Eve. It doesn't mean that he met her. It means that he had sex with her. Adam knew his wife and she bore a son, right? That's a way it's used in the Old Testament. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. It doesn't mean that God knows about me. David in that psalm is saying, you know everything about me. Everything. Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, kind of a chilling passage where uh, Jesus says in that day, thinking of the last day, he says, in that day there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not heal in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. What does that mean? I I didn't have a relationship with you. You did things in my name, but you didn't care anything about me. Salvation. This is what Paul is saying. 
Salvation was not an afterthought to God. It was his purpose from before the beginning. Salvation was not an afterthought to God. It was his purpose from before the beginning. And then what did he do? Well, what Paul does is he drops the P word like it's no big deal, right? He predestined you. Well, the word itself, it means literally what it says. God set a destination before you. If you are his, he set a destination for you beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son, to be saved. Okay? Now, obviously, this is quite the buzzword. And I get questions like, I've gotten questions like this for eight years now, right? Do you believe in predestination because you're Presbyterian? Or do you believe in... No, by the way, there are a lot of Baptists who believe in it. Um, anyway. Actually, we all believe in it. That's the purpose of my joke. I ruined my joke. Anyway. Do you believe in it because you're a Presbyterian? Do you believe in it because you're Reformed? Do you believe in it because you're a Calvinist? That's like the straight, like, you want to put me in my place. You call me a Calvinist, right? Um, I read Calvin, like, once. Anyway. I didn't admit that. Take that off the podcast. Um... I believe in it, and you do too, because it's in the Bible. It's a word that is repeated in the Bible, okay? So get that out of the way. And Paul doesn't say it. He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't bring it up here. In Ephesians 1, he says it like four times, okay? He's like predestined out and just throws it out there, okay? He's not saying it to get a rise out of anyone. This is what he's doing. He is driving home... God's good and ultimate purpose for us. He's saying this is what God determined to do, to foreknow us, to forelove us, to predestine us, to conform us to the image of His Son. And He did it out of love. What Paul is telling us is that this foreknowing, this foreloving, this predestinating God, in Him there is a love. Get this. That is its own justification. In this God, there is a love that is its own justification. What does, this, what does that mean? Why does he love me? Because he loves me. That's the answer. Why does God love me? Because he loves me. It's a love that's its own justification. Look, we, we looked at this for a whole semester last, last fall. This is why dating is so miserable. Okay, no matter how long you've been dating or whatever, this is why dating is so miserable because dating is just one long audition. Is it not at any moment? I can look at you and say, yeah, it's just not working. That's dating, right? This is why we're miserable with dating because it's an audition. But in marriage, right? In marriage, you have there's this thing there, right? Why do you love me? (laughs) Because I made you say I do. No, in the context of the marriage covenant, right? There's a love then that's its own justification because I belong to you and you belong to me. Quite simply, what Paul is saying is that there is a decision, but God's decision preceded ours. And sure, look, there are many philosophical questions about this and Paul takes them up in Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11. And I'm sorry we can't get there this semester. 
And your any philosophical questions, they're not illegitimate. But let Paul keep going just in this verse. Because what's the next thing he says? The next thing he says in verse 30 is those whom he predestined, he what? He called. Okay, so think about this. Paul is trying to set forth for us succinctly God's good purpose for us from eternity past to eternity future. What is the link that connects the two? What happens in time? What happens in time? He calls us. How does he call us? Through his gospel. How do we, do, how do we get the gospel? We hear it. How do we hear it? It's preached. What do we do with it? We believe. How does that happen? Romans 10. That's what the whole chapter is about. I want you to listen to this. I, I think this is fascinating. Every time I read it. At the beginning of Thessalonians and in, in, uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul is kind of in his usual greeting mode. And l- listen to what he says to the, the church at Thessalonica. He says this. For we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. How in the world does he know that? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You see what he's saying? He's saying we know you're chosen not just because you heard the gospel, but because you believed it. You responded to it in faith. It's a work of God and nothing else. Again, philosophical questions are not illegitimate, but I just encourage you, let the Bible speak for itself. Jesus, in John 6, can say to his disciples, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But in chapter 5, one chapter before that, he told a group of Pharisees this, you search the scriptures, the scriptures are about me, but you do not come to me because you refuse to. Which is it, Jesus? Romans 9, Paul says, For Scripture says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then in Romans 10, he says, The Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Which is it? Both. Here it is. Paul, the Bible, Jesus himself. Jesus himself. He doesn't say it to be controversial. He doesn't say it to make your head hurt or make you doubt. He doesn't say it for you to ask the question, am I chosen? Am I predestined? No one in the Bible asks that question. No one does. And if anybody treats you like you should be asking that question, they haven't read the Bible or they're ignoring it. No, the cry of the gospel again and again and again is, do you believe how much this God loves us? Do you? Are you letting some question about evil in the world give you an excuse not to think about it? Or what's happened in your life? Or some doctrine? Do you believe this good news? Do you catch how he ended it there in verse 30? He also justified, and those whom he justified, not he will glorify, but he glorified. This love is so great that your future is so certain that Paul can talk about it as if it's already complete. Philippians 1, six he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because God works it out in our life. By what? There it is again. His grace. 
conclude with this, in the way Paul concludes. What shall we say then? What, what do we say to that? And it's all summed up. I wish we could just break it down phrase by phrase, but let's just look at verse 35. It's all summed up in that one question. What in the world can separate us from this love? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. My friends, there is just times where all I want to say is, do you see this? Do you hear this? Do you want to see it? Do you want to hear it? Because what Paul is saying is it always has, it always was, it always is, and it always will be about one thing. And that is God's love for his people through Jesus. That's it. Always. I'll never forget stumbling upon, I mean, Providence, but stumbled upon this uh, TV show. And it was like the moment I saw it, it was like sermon illustration for life. Um, so you're lucky I don't use it every week. But I think I've used it. I can't remember the last time I used it. But anyway, it's one of those flash mob TV shows. Flash mobs are already like not cool. But anyway, uh, it's one of those flash mob TV shows. Uh, and the premise of this one was this guy had been in a friendship with this girl who he'd actually never physically met, which I find interesting. But he'd been in the fr- this like deep friendship with this girl long distance uh, for years. And he was deeply in love with her. Ding, ding, ding. Did you come last fall? So there you go. Anyway. Um, but they, uh, and so he enlists, obviously, the way every guy chooses to tell a girl how he loves him. He gets a TV show to help. Ha um, ha. Anyway. Laugh. Made me feel better about myself, please. Um, and so as the episode goes, it's all set up, right? She goes out to dinner with a friend. They're sitting at a table. Just a normal night, full restaurant. Busy, 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 right? All of a sudden, music comes on and it's blaring everywhere. Where's this music? All of a sudden, the, their waiter just starts doing this, this uh, very choreographed dance, right? Then the whole wait staff begins doing the exact same dance. And they're like, what is going on? Then every single person in the restaurant stands up and starts doing the exact same dance. And so she's freaking out at this point. Then her friend joins in it and she's really freaking out. Um, and as it goes, they kind of, their pathway parts and it leads her out the restaurant, out onto the street. And there are literally hundreds of people lining this long street all doing this synchronized, awesome, cool dance that I wish I knew how to do. <laughs> and so as, the, as, the, as it all happens, you know, as she's walking, like, there's always a pathway that's kind of leading her down the right way. And finally, she ends up at this huge fountain. And all of a sudden, these hundreds of people that are dancing, the music stops and everyone freezes, right? She's no idea what's going on. The crowd parts. That was sweat, not a tear. Anyway. (laughs) I ruined the moment. So there's this flash mob TV show. No, I'm joking. The music stops. The crowd freezes. And the crowd parts. And there it is. Just a man who wants to tell a girl that he's in love with her. It was powerful. It was. And every guy's like, I've got to remember that for when I get engaged. Um, I'll never forget. I'll never forget the closing credits 
as she and this guy are sitting there and this look on her face, like you can tell like she's still just trying to take it all in, right? Um, and, and, and in just in a weird moment, I guess somebody off camera probably asked her a question, but she kind of just snaps out of it. She looks up at the camera and she says this. I just never knew that there was someone who could care about me this much to do something like this. Fade to black, right? Y'all, don't you see? This is exactly what Paul's trying to tell us. This is what Paul is saying. That there is a love just like that. But this love is eternal. This love is everlasting. It is unchangeable. It's a providential love. It's his purpose for you worked out and sustaining every single detail of your life. It's a prodigal love. He did not even spare his only son so that he could pour it out for you. It is a prevailing love because there is not one single thing in all of creation that could ever separate you from it. Not any person, not any power, not any past, not any present, not any personal trouble that can separate you from this love in Jesus. There's only one way I can end this. It's just to say, do you know even a little bit of this love? Do you want to? The Apostle John is often referred to as the Apostle of Love, the beloved Apostle, because he was the closest to Jesus. This is how he puts it in 1 John 4, verse 9. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not about how much you love God. It's about how much he loves you. That's it. Let's pray. Father, if only we knew an ounce of that love, if only we knew that even when we don't feel it, it's the same. Nothing changes it. You cannot love us more than you already do. You cannot love us less because of anything. It's not possible. Your love is your love. It never fails. It never gives up as we sing and as we love to sing. And Father, sometimes we feel so guilty because we know on paper that this is true. And so we wonder, why in the world don't I feel it? Would that be the moment that you once again come and say, it doesn't change how much I love you. 
doesn't change how much you love us. Nothing changes how much you love us. Father, we want to believe that. Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.